Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Okay, welcome to Behind the Knife. I'm Jason Bingham. I'm here with Wu Do. We are at the 13th Annual Academic Surgical Congress in Jacksonville, Florida. We were fortunate enough to be invited to come out here and cover the conference. Um, you know, our goal is to give you guys an idea of what the Academic Surgical Congress is all about um, and give you a representation of what's being covered here. Uh, you know, maybe you've been before and you couldn't be this year, or maybe you've never been, but uh, it's, a, it's a great conference. It's great for residents. It's great for attendings of any level. But we sat down with a number of very fascinating people today and we had brief conversations uh, with what they'd be covering here at the Congress. We had a great conversation with Dr. Jamie Coleman. Um, about social media and its role, uh, its growing role in medicine. Stephen Holabar, uh, who uh, had a, a lot of interesting things to say about the use of artificial intelligence in, in research and in electronic medical records. We sat down with Christian Jones. Every time we sit down with Christian Jones, it's always a great conversation. He's, he's a very fascinating person to talk to. Um, and then Lillian Cow, who's one of the former presidents of the AAS. We were able to talk to her about her role with the um, AAS Foundation and uh, her role in doing some really kind of innovative fundraising for some uh, uh, various very important initiatives. And before we dive right into today's content, we just wanted to give you guys a shout out and thanks uh, for all your support during our AppSite review series. Uh, believe it or not, we hit over half a million downloads just in the month of January alone. So that was quite a feat and we couldn't have done it without your support. We hope you found that content helpful and we hope you will look forward to more of that sort of content coming in the days and weeks to come. Uh, so follow us on Twitter, uh, join our mailing list, and and watch out for the events of this Congress. All right, let's dive right into it with our first interview with uh, Dr. J.B. Coleman. Okay, and here we are. We're sitting down with uh, Dr. Jamie Coleman. Uh, Dr. Coleman is the trauma uh, is a trauma and acute care surgeon at Indiana U University Health and an assistant professor of surgery at Indiana University School of Medicine in Indianapolis. But about to transition, moving over uh, to Denver Health. Uh, she is a medical media expert, uh, a great public speaker, avid writer and blogger, and frequent contributor to both the Huffington Post as well as U.S. News, News and World Report. Dr. Coleman, thank you for joining us here on Behind the Knife. Thank you so much for having me. This is an absolute pleasure. So I have to say, I'm actually a little intimidated to have you on. Uh, as you know, somebody who kind of found himself accidentally in the world of medical social media to have a true medical media expert on is, is a little, I'm afraid I'm going to be found out for the fraud that I am. <laughs> well, I think a lot of us ended up in this space, quote unquote, accidentally. For example, this started with a blog that a friend and I were like, oh, let's just, let's start a blog. Sure. Okay. It's kind of a throwaway idea a bit, um, but it really turned into something else. And I've learned a lot along the way, good things, bad things. And again, with the overall goal of hoping to improve the care of our patients, improve our patients' experience in healthcare. And a lot of it has to do with injury prevention, especially me being a trauma surgeon. Yeah. Can you give us a little more detail on that? So uh, specifically, what drives you to be so prolific in social media? I think for me, a lot of it comes down to the facts. And the facts are that Social media is really mainstream media these days. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not a fad. People don't use social media just for entertainment purposes. They are using it to learn about their health, to find treatments, find physicians. And the bottom line is the media needs us because they need content. It's a true 24-hour, seven-day-a-week news cycle. They need content, and they will find someone. And the question is, who is that going to be? And I think as responsible physicians, it's on us to do our best to provide the best information. So we just listened to you. We're here, at, as everyone knows, we're here at ASC 2018. We just listened to you give a great talk you know, uh, of uh, one of these hot topic lunch sessions over you know, building an academic career in the world of social media. And, and yours was one about pu public health initiatives in trauma surgery. Um, can you give us, you gave some examples in your talk, but can you give our listeners some examples of times when this has worked and times when this hasn't worked? Absolutely. The thing is that we know Media impacts our patients, and it impacts 
overall the general population. And if, even if you look back all the way to 2002, really before social media became mainstream media, Katie Couric got a colonoscopy live on the Today Show. Mm-hmm. In the year following, there was a 20% increase in screening colonoscopies. She directly impacted the care of people here in America. Conversely, one of my colleagues who's a surgeon in the UK shared with me the story about George Best, who's a very famous UK footballer, who unfortunately was an alcoholic, developed cirrhosis, and also underwent a liver transplant very publicly in 2002. The following year, he unfortunately succumbed back to his alcoholism and again very publicly had a return to his drinking. At the same time, his transplant surgeon was in the news saying how alcoholics and people who continue to drink should not get liver transplants. This then resulted in, not the surgeon, but in the actions of George Best, then resulted in a decrease in the number of liver donations that the UK experienced, and it took years for them to recover. What we say and what we do, and not even just us, but lay people, people that don't have a medical background, absolutely can impact how patients and how people take care of or don't take care of their health. So I guess, you know, uh, well, first off, what what kind of backlash have you gotten from? Because I, I know for us, when we first started doing this podcast and started getting traction, the the kind of feedback we were getting from colleagues and colleagues that respect was a little bit mixed. There seems to be a little bit of hesitancy um, for the legitimate sciences to enter this, this social media. So what has your experience been with that and how do you respond to those? I think there definitely is hesitancy. I think when you take a platform that really started based on selfies and taking yeah. pictures of what you eat, um, I think there's a lot of people still in this field that think that that's what social media is. But we have all the evidence that proves that that's not true. In fact, over 75% or about 75% of all internet users are using social media. And that the majority, 80% of people, are using social media to find out more about their health. Yeah. Whether it's a new diagnosis, any symptoms they're having, they want to lose weight, they want to pick a new diet or exercise regimen. People are already doing it. So it's not me or you guys or anyone else saying, oh, hey, pay attention to social media. It's social media saying, hey, we're using social media for medicine and for our health. And I don't think it's a choice. This isn't a fad. It's not going away. And social media is now media. And I think we just have to accept that. So given the demand that's out there in the public for good content, good information that's going to drive decisions that impact healthcare, can you give us a progress report? How are surgeons doing? We're not there yet. Um, again, I, as we talked earlier, the morning after the Las Vegas shooting, one of the news shows, one of the morning news shows that has actually the most number of viewers had two physicians on their program to discuss what happened and what are these patients going through and what kind of injuries are they having? What's their hospital course going to look like? One physician was not from a trauma center who was a neurosurgeon and the other one was an OBGYN. And this isn't to malign what they did. Um, again, I think that any physician in that position, whether it's your field or not, you're trying to do the best that you can. But we trauma surgeons, we as a community, we lost that opportunity to talk about things that really matter to us and to our patients in a way that we, who live it every day, have a different perspective on. We miss that opportunity to talk about the golden hour the difference of commercially available tourniquets, which actually work, versus compromised tourni- or um, improvised tourniquets, which don't work. Mm-hmm. And we know that. We miss talking about our goals of zero preventable deaths, pre-hospital life-threatening hemorrhage. There are a lot of things that we as a trauma surgeon community missed out on. And this isn't to blame the news outlets. It's not their fault. They need content, and they sought board-certified physicians. Right. You know, They didn't go out and just find a random person on the street. But the question is not, are we doing okay? The question always has to be, whether it's in the hospital or out, can we do this better? And I think the bottom line is right now, we can do it better. What do you see the dangers 
I mean, certainly there's got to be some downside and there's got to be some dangers to getting out there and having your medical voice heard by millions of people. What do you, what do you see as the, the danger and should people be cautious and should people be hesitant to enter this field? I don't know necessarily people should be hesitant, but I think cautious is always a good thing. And people are nervous, and I understand that. When you take your voice and you take it outside of your community and outside of your hospital and try to take it to more of a national or regional level, it's always nerve-wracking wanting to make sure you're saying the right thing. I think the things to think about are, one, having the right motivations. If you have the right motivations and that you are in that space and you are creating a voice in order to help patients, you have to rely on those instincts. And if that's really your goal, it's not to sell products, it's not Mm -hmm. to sell commercial time, it's not to advance your own brand, but if you keep it patient-centered, you're going to be okay. Um, Advice would be always that, remember, you do have a white coat. And for me, especially from the trauma surgery standpoint and the perspective, when you talk about gun violence, regardless of how people feel on a personal level, I think it goes back to finding the common ground. You cannot engage or make progress with people who won't listen to you. And some people won't. But if you start in a spot where you can all agree and say, okay, gun violence is a problem. It is a problem when children get up in the morning, put on their backpack, go to school, and don't come home. How do we fix that problem? And I know that there's going to be a lot of ideas and differing opinions, but if you can come back to that common ground and then engage in conversation, then we can make progress. So to follow that up, in the process of engaging in that conversation, and and this is a very politically charged, sensitive issue On those topics, when you're putting yourself out there, do you ever think there's a risk of alienating the patients that are maybe holding an opposite viewpoint? There's always a chance. There's always a chance of alienating partners, colleagues, patients. But again, I go back to when you look at my personal page, I don't talk about gun rights or gun control because you're not, not everyone's going to be that way. Your goal is not to make everyone think like you. Our goal is to stop loss of life, needlessly, insensibly, in young, innocent people. Not even just young, innocent people. Any any person. That's our goal. So if you make your comments and your suggestions and your opinions based on that common goal, that will keep you out of trouble. That will keep you, hopefully, at a place where people are invited and want to engage with you. Say, okay, well, how do we do that? Well, let's look at research. Do we need more research? What kind of research do we need? Again, with a focus of gun violence, not who owns and who doesn't to a certain extent. Obviously, that can come into play, but you have to start somewhere. And I think really focusing on something that every human can agree on is a way to start. So in the in the you know the lunch topic also was discussed not only you know communicating with patients and communicating with you know the layman but the role social media is going to play and is starting to play in how physicians talk to each other how we do research um, how we educate each other what where do you see this going where where are we now and do you think where where do you think it's going. I think we're headed in a great direction with that. I think we're seeing an increase in the use of visual abstracts. I think we are seeing an increase in the number of online journal clubs. We're seeing an increase in social media, whether it's Twitter or Facebook, during the meetings. We're forming relationships. We're making this world smaller and yet bigger at the same time. Smaller in the sense of you don't have to be partners with someone in order to partner with them. And then bigger also in that there's so much opportunity for all of us to help each other with research, to really produce the best quality abstracts, manuscripts, but really the best quality evidence that we can. And doing it together absolutely is the way to go. I think we're in a great position now, and I think it's only growing. How do you measure your social media impact? Are there good metrics out there? Is that something we're still working on? I think we're still working on that. I think especially when you talk about academics in terms of what kind of 
impact do we mean? Do we mean patient impact, like Katie Couric, with where we see a direct measurable increase? Or is it number of impressions on Twitter or number of shares on Facebook? That science really isn't there yet or that methodology. We still are working on that. But hopefully, as part of this, as more physicians engage, we can get some more answers. We can get some more data. And again, to help us, we're all busy. We all, like I tell everyone, I have a real job. I have a a day job. (laughs) And making our efforts efficient. So that again, as highlighted during the talk, noise versus signal. In other words, making sure that what we produce is meaningful and impactful for people. So do you ever see a point where uh, Twitter has an impact factor associated with it? I don't know, but I would I would really <laughs> hope so. That would probably help me out a little bit. <laughs> um, I, I hope so. And I think there are some institutions who are already leaning that way, Yeah. Um, who are already incorporating the type of publication. In other words, you know, Huffington Post versus U.S. News versus Forbes, you know, different outlets and kind of grading them and scoring them in terms of if you get something in one of these, then it kind of equals or is equivalent to how many peer-reviewed right. scientific articles. Yeah. And it again goes back to if your goal is to impact the care of the patient, there's more than one way to do that. Science is absolutely one hugely important way to do that. Another way to help amplify what we're already doing mm-hmm. is by engaging in this space. And I think that absolutely that requires a skill set. Some people like to do it. Some people are good at it. Hopefully those two combine. And it also takes time. And as busy academicians, um, (laughs) time is a real commodity for us. It has a real value. Well, it's a very fascinating topic, something we're definitely interested a lot uh, here at, at Beyond the Knife. It's, it's very applicable. Um, and uh, we could talk for a long time, but I won't let you get back to the meeting. So we'll have to schedule you to come on for a full interview on Behind the Knife. Thank so, you so much. So if people want to find you online, yes. how, do, how do they do that? Best place, uh, at JJ Coleman, C-O-L-E-M-A-N, M-D, at JJ Coleman, M-D, and also www.jjcolemanmd. Great. Dr. Coleman, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This was a pleasure. All right. We're back at ASC 2018. We're here with Stefan Hollibar. He's a colorectal surgeon at the Cleveland Clinic, uh, works with our good buddy, Scott Russell Steele. Uh, we won't hold that against him. Um, he's here at ASC, and he has a talk on the electronic medical record um, and using artificial intelligence uh, for to process massive data. Uh, Dr. Hollibar, thank you for being with us on Behind the Knife. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak with you, Jason and Wu. Um, so I'm giving a talk this afternoon on a really hot topic. I mean, we all have been mandated by the government, um, by the American Reinvestment Act uh, in high tech in, um, under the Obama administration, uh, whereby they pumped $25 billion to basically mandate us all to migrate to the electronic medical record or the electronic health record. And uh, in the talk this afternoon, I'm going to go through different applications of uh, different kinds of smart phrases and dot phrases and ways that you can improve your own uh, personal um, record keeping and really go beyond the soap note and uh, look to new types of documentation uh, using these different kinds of phrases. Um, the second half of my talk is going to be talking about artificial intelligence uh, and uh, massive data because the EHR really um, is now having billions of data points, and this is a super hot topic. Yeah. For example, uh, just today, um, there was an announcement from Amazon that uh, Hathaway, um, I'm sorry, Berkshire Hathaway, uh, J.P. Morgan, and uh, Amazon have all uh, come together to form a collaborative whereby they're going to um, uh, apply Amazon analytics to their own employees to try to reduce healthcare costs. Okay. How are we going to be using this artificial intelligence? What are the pros? What are the cons? Um, Because I I can tell a lot of people are uh, get pretty anxious when you start talking about mining their medical records with artificial intelligence. Um, So uh, if you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. So uh, basically, the uh, old-fashioned way of uh, gathering data from uh, the paper record or from the electronic health record was just by doing chart reviews. Uh, the next uh, more complex method of doing it is uh, if you index all the ICD-9 codes and CPT codes, you can then do a free text search. And I did a study uh, at Mayo Clinic on looking at splenic injury, and we looked at both the ICD-9 codes and CPT codes, but we also 
search the operative notes using optical character recognition to then identify additional patients that we were missing. The next way to do this is using queries or reports. The problem with this is you have to hard program the variables into Epic, for example. AI goes beyond that. It's uh, EHR agnostic, meaning the time you invest and program the the AI can be then used to look at uh, Epic data or um, Cerner data, Mm -hmm. or it doesn't care what kind of feed that it's getting. Um, the uh, real um, advantage of using uh, natural language processing in particular, which is one branch of AI, to abstract the data is basically it's a, it's a trained research assistant that's reviewing the charts for you electronically. Uh, there's no uh, privacy issues beyond what would otherwise be covered by a normal uh, IRB chart review study. Yeah. And so how do, is this something that we're only seeing in select institutions right now? Is this very expensive? Uh, it's not very expensive. It is a resource intensive though. You yeah. have to uh, program it. Um, you have to have a, um, basically an artificial intelligence bioinformatics uh, programmer. Right now, uh, work is being done at both Mass General and uh, Cleveland Clinic, uh, on using, applying this to different, um, select populations. Google just announced a few days ago that they are getting into this, uh, game. And they are going to be applying uh, their Google Analytics to uh, 46 billion data points to predict medical outcomes for hospitalized patients. Wow. So for your average researcher out there, maybe at a small institution um, that uh, is uh, struggling um, and we're all, I feel like, drowning in data, um, how can is this applicable to that person? Well, it's actually being used already. Um, uh, by u- predictive analytics, and this can be, um, I think, part of the package that you get from Epic, for example. Mm-hmm. And, um, for example, they use the uh, modified early warning system score. And on my smartphone, when I round, it gives me the, the green light, orange light, or red light for the status of the patient. And if there's a change, this can help tip you off to um, a change in um, physiologic status before you even see the patient. Yeah, and that said, how much of that is going to be contributing to data fatigue or overuse of this data? Jason mentioned drowning in so much data. Uh, how much of it are we going to need to sift through before we find stuff that's actually clinically useful? Well, you know, that's a, one of some of the finishing thoughts on my talk is that what we've really done is this much amount of data, we really become, um, to quote a New England Journal of Medicine article from September uh, by Obermeyer and Lee, we are, the title is Lost in Thought, The Limits of the Human Mind and the Future of Medicine. And the um, older population is seeing more and more uh, subspecialists who order more tests, and the growth of the data is, it's not just fatigue, it's beyond our comprehension, it's beyond the biologic limits of the human mind. So to take it to the next level into the 21st century, we really do need artificial intelligence to uh, help us, because it's not just fatigue, it's it's incomprehensible. And um, network medicine is going to be the next step whereby um, all these different uh, things are then a network to each other. And this is just an order of a magnitude complexity above what we understand. It's almost akin to a fourth or fifth dimensional analysis. And we really have to have artificial intelligence to help us to understand it in human terms. So although the data um, is going to be beyond the biologic limits of the human mind, it's not going to be on the biologic, the uh, limits of the human imagination. So how long do you think before this is a commonplace, before, you know, where your physicians are using this at the bedside to evaluate patients or using artificial intelligence to assist in evaluating patients? So there's two, I'd have two comments. So the first is that um, this is already being used widely. So we don't know it, but we are each a massive data project for um, Facebook, which uh, targets ads. It's kind of creepy. Yeah. But this is how those creepy ads is deep learning systems. And Alexa, similarly, is a deep learning system that focuses on us as individuals and makes movie recommendations or iTunes recommendations. So this is already being used in industry widely. And it's been in the headlines twice in the last seven days. So I think this is tomorrow. Wow. I think uh, we'll, we'll, ha- we'll be doing, quote, unquote, Alexa rounds. And Alexa won't just be on your iPhone or on a desktop, but she'll be in the cloud and she will be rounding for you. And she will be the early warning system that, you know, if a human is not picking up on the subtle changes and variations, uh, the AI might be able to predict that better. 
Awesome. That's super fascinating. So do you have any place where our, if our listeners want to learn more uh, about the work that you're doing or about this, any, any place you can direct them? Uh, yeah, there's um, one um, book in particular called Network Medicine, uh, which really describes uh, in gory detail with beautiful diagrams about what uh, I've just been speaking about. Awesome. Well, uh, Dr. Holibar, uh, thank you for speaking with us here behind the knife. Looking forward to your talk this afternoon. Thank you so much, Jason and Will. Okay, this is Jason Wu here, still continuing with the uh, ASC 2018 conference. Uh, we are sitting down with uh, one of our old friends, Dr. Christian Jones. He's the assistant professor of surgery at uh, John Hopkins and the, the new fellowship director of the ACS, uh, the acute care surgery program at Hopkins. So we're going to want to talk to him a little bit about that. He's also the, the new um, chair of the AAS Committee on Technology and Communications. Uh, Dr. Jones, thanks for being with Behind the Knife once again. It is absolutely my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Always a big fan. So before we get into anything too uh, too deep, why don't you tell us about your your fellowship program? Uh, that's that's is is it just starting up at Hopkins or you're just taking it over? Uh, so I'm just taking it over. Uh, the fine Dr. Elliot Hout has been the fellowship director for quite some time, and as he continues to move up in the ranks, we have the opportunity to uh, make a few little changes, uh, both to the program itself as well as uh, to the leadership of it. Uh, Education is, of course, one of my great passions in surgery and, uh, in fact, has been for even longer than I've been interested in surgery. So it works out well, and it's a good fit for me. The Acute Care Surgery Fellowship at Hopkins has been going on for more than a decade. Uh, it is not uh, in any way an accredited fellowship. There's double AST uh, certification for Acute Care Surgery Fellowships, but there's no ACGME accreditation. Uh, and that gives us a lot of flexibility in what we're able to offer Fellows, both in terms of electives as well as in uh, terms of their timing. So we'll have fellows who, uh, you know, start in January as opposed to July if they need some time to work on other things. We'll have fellows who have a great deal of experience with operative trauma and some who have only worked in smaller centers where it's mainly blunt trauma. Uh, we are partnered, of course, with the Surgical Critical Care Fellowship, but our one-year fellowship is a nice benefit for people who are interested in emergency care of the surgical patient while maybe not getting as much exposure to it during residency as they'd like. Um, how many fellows a year are you taking? Officially, we have two fellows a year. To be honest, that's also a little bit flexible, partly yeah. because of the timing issues. Uh, we've had as few as one fellow, uh, and uh, next fall for a brief time, we'll have up to four, uh, as a matter of fact. And they work as attendings. We are consistently supervising them, but at the same time, they have full attending privileges and the ability to staff their own cases. And if it's something that they feel comfortable working on, we're more than comfortable letting them continue to do it. They also get the opportunity to do some elective work uh, if they like. Uh, they work at a couple of different centers, not just our downtown hospital, and they do everything from uh, elective inguinal hernia repairs to cracking the chest in the trauma bay. Yeah, Could you actually elaborate on that just a little bit further? I know that in today's era of uh, patient safety and uh, patient-centered care, we're all worried about the autonomy that we're getting as trainees. Uh, what are you doing? What do you envision uh, as far as your goal for autonomy and increasing autonomy of your residents or your fellows? I think that's a perfect question. When I was in medical school, I thought that the way every surgery worked was just like all the surgeries that I was witnessing, which is there's a second or third year resident who's taking an intern through the case, and maybe there's an attending who's uh, poking their head in uh, or handling particularly complicated procedures. I was very surprised when I got into residency and found that that wasn't typical. And instead, I, I've honestly been a little concerned that residents don't have as much autonomy as they used to, whether that's just autonomy in doing the case under attending supervision or what I think is incredibly valuable, teaching more junior residents to do the case. If you can teach a case, you know it's significantly better than just being able to go through the motions. I think that's the opportunity that a lot of our fellows are getting for the first time as well. Even if they're technically adept and able to do cases that may be difficult, may be challenging, the opportunity to take that to the next level and be able to teach the junior or the senior residents how to go through that case as well is uh, hugely beneficial. You know, these are fellows who have finished a general surgery residency. They're either board eligible or board certified already. 
We're not putting anybody into an unsafe situation, and the benefit of having this as a fellowship rather than uh, an accredited training program where an attending has to be constantly looking over your shoulder is that you do get the opportunity to make those decisions yourself while still being in a supportive environment uh, in case questions come up or complications arise. Uh, while we're on the topic of trauma and critical care, you're about to moderate a session tomorrow about the clinical outcomes uh, in trauma and critical care. What's down the pipeline? What, what do you envision for the future of this research? What excites you? So one of the things that really excites me because I'm an incredible nerd is still the ability to use all the information that's consistently being gathered to actually help make patient care decisions. Right now, our outcomes research, whether you're talking trauma or anything else, are things like identifying risk factors for readmissions, uh, something that I've had a lot of success in writing about and in guiding students and residents through. But at the same time, there's a relatively limited ability to actually apply that to patient care on a regular basis. I think as we're more able to go into real-time evaluation of all of those risk factors, as well as the rest of the information that's coming through uh, from monitors from the electronic medical record and so forth, the informatic side of things is still just in its infancy. And I'm hoping to see that, even over the course of my career, change significantly. We were just talking to Stefan uh, Holobar. He's giving a talk. Oh, sure. Yeah, he's giving a talk today, I guess, on using artificial intelligence. Um, are you familiar with this at all? To, like, a absolutely. Mine the data? So one of the first places that this arose was uh, in the Air Force and uh, the uh, transport uh, planes that were taking basically ICU patients in a tiny, tiny little pod uh, from the Middle East uh, to Landstuhl in those very first situations, they realized that something that seems relatively simple, like titrating the oxygen for saturations, we are incredibly bad at doing on a manual basis. Yeah. And even though it's the most simple side of uh, direct feedback, negative and positive feedback, and barely anything related to artificial intelligence, this is the first step into, again, changing care based on the direct feed. As we're able to implement more of that, not just into the algorithms that we all have to learn now, like QSOFA and yeah. scores that we're deciding whether a patient's sick or not, not just that, but actually in terms of areas where we can't even understand the underlying logic. Yeah. It's absolutely fascinating. Uh, you know, we all say artificial intelligence. The people who know what they're talking about talk about neural networks and so forth. And again, whether it's a Bayesian analysis network or a true neural network, in, in any case, the underlying goal of this quote unquote artificial intelligence is that it is able to quickly make decisions, not just because we don't want to, but because we can't with the limited amount of information that we can grasp at one time. It's absolutely fascinating. And you think this, so what's your prediction? Are we going to be doing this in uh, five years, 10 years, 15 years? So my prediction, if I completely disown any questions of the regulatory environment, which obviously will come into play in real life, right. if I completely get rid of any of those concerns, I still think that probably within the five to 10 year mark, what we're using artificial intelligence for is a relatively small portion of our actual patient care. I think the ability to make uh, clear uh, subtle clinical diagnoses will be with us rather than with computers for my guess is about the next 20 years or so. And certainly uh, I, I had, it's something I hadn't really thought a whole lot about until we were talking with him. And it's, it's a fascinating topic. I'm going to have to look more into it. I think I'm very interested by that. Um, what's been your, what do you th thought of the meeting so far? What's been your favorite thing you've seen or anything I you've learned? I absolutely love the Academic Surgical Congress. This was one of the first national conferences I presented at when I was a resident. Uh, I wasn't fancy like today's medical students and being able to get in as a medical student or even an undergrad or the occasional high school student. Uh, but I did get to present here very early on in my residency, and uh, I still find it to be the best general surgery conference that I ever attended. The meetings that I go to for trauma and acute care are fantastic, but the breadth of people at all different training levels that I get to interact with at the Academic Surgical Congress is really unmatched. So I've had the opportunity over the last couple of years to get more involved in the Association for Academic Surgeons. Uh, we end up 
working with the SUS, of course, on this conference and the opportunities to serve not just here, but the residents and the medical students who are coming in and presenting uh, as a moderator, as a mentor, um, or as, you know, just uh, uh, somebody to um, talk with in basic networking is really fantastic. So I love this conference. I am astounded that uh, Dr. Ryall, uh, the SUS president was able and willing to give a presentation on her own experience with burnout. Yeah. I think as we all know, this is something that doesn't get enough talk in our field. And the fact that the president of a major organization was able to bring that up and let people know that it's okay, not only to be burned out, but to find ways to cope with that is phenomenal. Uh, after Caprice Greenberg's talk last year on uh, the problems that women face in surgery, I think that we are clearly establishing the Academic Surgical Congress as a progressive meeting for young surgeons who want to move ahead and want to do so in a real uh, person way. I would echo that. I think that um, I think the first time I presented at a national conference, it was at the ASC meeting um, several years ago. So it's a great for residents out there are listening. I mean, it's it's a great place to submit an abstract to come to the come to the conference, meet great people, see really great talks, um, and uh, there's lots of opportunities for resident involvement. So I would definitely echo that. That's, well, and let me be entirely clear. Everybody knows this, uh, but for some reason, people don't like to talk about it a lot. There's a remarkably high acceptance rate. For for abstracts to be presented at this meeting. And some people see that as a downside, that uh, it's less serious science somehow. Um, I don't. I think it is an opportunity to significantly improve your science, to have the opportunity to present in a national forum uh, and get real feedback from people who know what they're talking about. Yeah. I think it's just a... I think it just speaks to how robust the the conference is that there are several different you know kind of you know side room presentations that are great for you know residents and to, to get involved in and like you say get here and get the experience and get some feedback so I think it just speaks to how robust the conference is. Oh, so you uh, you moder- I want to talk to you about. Uh, I'd be amiss if we didn't talk about social media a little bit. <laughs> sure. Uh, you moderated a session, um, a great session about using social media in medicine, and uh, we had a chance to sit down with uh, Dr. Coleman and talk about her experience with that. Um, how do you? How do you? First off, how do you use um, social media? Uh, how is it useful to you? And what are your concerns about using social media? All great questions. I have talked about social media a lot. I don't consider myself an evangelist for everyone using social media like uh, some of my colleagues uh, probably consider me, but it has worked very well for me, both personally and professionally. The opportunity to network in a almost more personal basis than meetings is phenomenal. One of the things Dr. Rial talked about today in her meeting was the concerns of putting on your Facebook face when you're at a conference, of wanting to make sure people know that you're successful, of wanting to make sure people uh, think that you never have concerns, of wanting to make sure that uh, people think the absolute best of you. And in fact, I've had exactly the opposite experience with social media. On social media, as opposed to at a traditional in-person meeting, I can point out that, yes, I have difficulties at work sometimes, too. I get down at work. I get frustrated with inefficiencies of the system. I uh, don't always have a good day. These are things that it's difficult to share directly with your partners or your colleagues, uh, but in a non-threatening environment where you see people who are going through the same thing, That's been a big benefit. I use social media for news. I use social media for uh, staying up on what's in what's going on in the world. I use social media to follow politics. Uh, But realistically, it is more than anything else, a strong community for me. And it's one that I don't always feel like I have access to uh, either when I'm on call in the middle of the night or at home and uh, having just come home from a rough day. 
I think honestly that even though social media has been remarkably good to me from an academic standpoint, I've had the opportunity to write a couple of papers about the use of social media uh, and uh, met with most of the colleagues that I was on this panel with mm -hmm. directly through social media for the first time. I think even though it's been good for me for that, it's actually been much better for me on the personal side of my profession. Hmm. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that we don't talk about as often. Social media has the opportunities for academia, for promotion, for education. And I don't want to in any way downplay those, but those are the things we talk about all the time. Absolutely. Yeah. I think the things that we don't talk about that are very real benefits are uh, the opportunities to simply communicate with people who are like you from all over the world. That's interesting. Yeah, that's definitely a perspective that we don't. I think we focus uh, because we, I, I think we almost we try and get away from that um, and try and ignore that aspect of it just because we're trying to legitimate, we're trying to justify the legitimacy of it, of using it in the medical environments. And, and uh, it's, it's an interesting perspective. Yeah, I agree with you. And again, by no means do I want to downplay the traditional professional benefits that yeah. uh, use of social media has. Uh, but for better or worse, I'm an attending. I can go to meetings. I can uh, I read all the journal articles I want. And those are options. Whereas maybe meeting up with a community of people who do the same thing that I do and who have the same troubles that I have uh, is less possible on a regular basis. Now, have you struggled with any negative aspects of putting yourself out there or being on social media? I know that one of the speakers, in fact, talked about getting hacked. Have you had any negative experience you could care to share? That's a great question. Realistically, not to any significant extent. There are trolls. There are <laughs> people who want to argue with you. One of the things that I learned from a very good friend is that you don't actually have to argue with them. And if I make liberal use of the block button and don't. Have you blocked Matt Martin? I have not black blocked <laughs> Matt Martin. Have you wanted to? Uh, not at all. <laughs> Matt Martin is fantastic. I would never block the guy. Uh, there may or may not be other trauma surgeons who I have used that button on. Um, but Matt, I love you. I would never block you. I'll follow you for uh, to the ends of the uh, earth. I prophylactically blocked him. So. That's entirely fair. That's entirely fair. I think um, that if you do have difficulties with social media, whether it's just the attitudes of people that you don't really want to interact with or uh, something more serious like hacking or cyber stalking or any of those things, I think it's entirely reasonable to take a break. I think people don't realize that it's not an on or off uh, switch. It's not something that you have to be completely and totally and utterly engaged uh, every minute of every day in or not on at all. You can take it at your own pace. You can do as much or as little of it as you want. And if you are having a rough time, that's okay too. Believe it or not, all of those things are things that other people have gone through on social media before, whether it's uh, the good Dr. Saccharin getting hacked or uh, whether it's uh, cyber stalking or anything like that. Um, these are all things people have gone through before. And amazingly enough, on social media, there are resources for how to deal with those problems. Um, and again, while I haven't had the horribly negative experiences that some people have, uh, that may just be because I'm lucky at this point. I think knowing that those things exist, uh, give a lot of people reluctance to go on social media. Um, whereas, uh, I'm sure there's some strange statistic, like you're more likely to be run over by a bus than have your Twitter account hacked or something like that. Let me be clear. I don't know if that's actually <laughs> true, but that's, uh, what I'm going to say as a possibility. Uh, somebody please look that up on uh, social media and check that <laughs> fact check that. Well, Dr. Jones, we don't want to keep you from the meeting. Uh, I appreciate you sitting down with us. It's always a pleasure. If people do want to connect with you on uh, social media, where do they find you? Yep. So on Twitter, I'm at Jones surgery. Uh, you can always, of course, just email me at oncall at christianjones.md um, or just Google uh, I'm the Christian Jones that's neither a baseball player nor a football player, uh, and uh, I'm happy to chat anytime. Well, it's always a pleasure. Thank you very much, gentlemen. 
Okay, we got Jason Wu here. We're at uh, ASC 2018, and we are fortunate to be able to sit down with uh, Dr. Lillian Cow. She is the professor of the Department of Surgery at the McGovern Medical School of, of UT Health Sciences, the chief of acute care surgery, the former president of the Association for Academic Surgery, and the current AAS Foundation president. Dr. Cow, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being back on the podcast, I should say. <laughs> Um, so I, we just recently found out that uh, Dr. Cow was a senior resident when Scott Russell Steele, Matthew J. Martin were junior residents. Um, and we're not going to talk about any of the stories she told us on the air, but uh, suffice it to say they uh, were quite entertaining. So thank you for sharing those with us. <laughs> You're welcome. We won't tell a soul. <laughs> uh, so uh, talk to us a little bit about... Um, I was curious to see just what your overall impression of the meeting is so far as as a prior president of the AAS. Uh, What's been one of the favorite things you've seen so far? This is one of my favorite meetings to come to. I think that um, the energy here is unparalleled at any other meeting. And I think that uh, the culture has definitely changed over time. I think that while the science um, is still exciting to see, it's really about networking and seeing just young, excited students and residents who want to become surgeons. That is the most exciting part about this meeting. And then it's also like a family reunion. I consider the AAS and SUS to be my family. And so uh, a lot of people who are in other subspecialties, you don't see them a lot because you don't attend the same meetings. So this is mm-hmm. one of the few meetings where you really get to see your all your distant relatives. You know, I'm a trauma acute care surgeon, so I see my vascular surgery friends and my pediatric surgery friends. And it's really like seeing your cousins instead of just your core family. Um, and that's really fun. I would agree with that. I've only been coming to this meeting now for in my short career for four or five years, but it's it's it, you see the same people every year, and it's really it's 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 fun. It's like oh hey, it's that guy, and uh, it's it's DJ Dory. <laughs> 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 um, so it's a very tight, you know, close knit community, and, and it's a lot of fun. So, um, if you could talk to us a little bit about your current role now as the AAS Foundation President, um, what does that entail, and what are you working on? Yeah, so as AS Foundation President, uh, really we are the stewards of the money that is used to fund the initiatives of the Association for Academic Surgery. So we're really a sister organization and uh, we invest the money, we try to fundraise and come up with novel ways to get people engaged. So this year I'm very excited because we have our first ever um, ASC poker fundraising tournament in uh, although there are some naysayers that say, well, you really shouldn't be gambling at a academic surgical congress, um, it's really all in fun. And just like you would sponsor someone to run a race and family and friends can donate, uh, people sponsor players for the poker tournament and it's a $1,000 buy-in. So it could be that 100 people donate to see Scott Steele play, although he actually isn't playing this year. Um, <laughs> however, someone could donate. Uh, and then we play and it's just for fun, but the money raised is going to be split between the AAS and the SUS foundations. And the reason that's really important to me is because we have some very important initiatives and we're one of the few societies, for example, uh, that funds a global surgery award. So that is an area that needs much more research, that is underfunded, that doesn't have a lot of opportunities um, for residents in particular to do research. So Right now, we only fund a $10,000 award, whereas all of our other research awards are twice as much. So it would be fantastic if we could raise enough money to make it at least equivalent to the other awards. So let's say that I am a current resident or a student, and I'm interested in that Global Surgery uh, Research Award. Uh, you know, Tell me more about that. What can I do? So there's a call for proposals once a year. I think it's usually in the late summer to fall, and you would submit a research proposal. Uh, A committee would review it, and then they actually pick the finalists to come to the Academic Surgical Congress to have in-person interviews. So they interview those, and then they'll announce the winners on Thursday. The other thing that the AAS funds, uh, the AAS and the foundation fund, are student travel awards and the student research awards for this meeting. So uh, we fund people to travel here, uh, $500 and um, also the best student abstracts, et cetera. 
So that all comes from a joint effort with the AAS and the foundation. So I imagine I've, uh, in my prior life, uh, as part of a nonprofit, I worked on some fundraising and it's never fun. <laughs> like, <laughs> and uh, me being a person that works in fundraising, still when NPR fundraising campaign comes on, I switch the radio station. So how do you, what have been the challenges you faced? It sounds like a very interesting idea, the poker tournament. Have, has it been successful in keeping people interested in we have yet to see since it's tomorrow night okay. uh, at seven o'clock. It is going to precede DJ Dory. Um, so we're hoping that people will come for the poker tournament and stay for the extravaganza. There will be um, drinks served to all who come and watch, as well as all the players. NPR has not tried that. But I think one of the challenges is that both the AAS and the SUS have fairly strict conflict of interest policies. Uh, both societies decided a long time ago that while um, it is important to partner with industry as surgeons, that uh, we were too dependent on industry for meetings. Mm -hmm. And so we uh, wrote a white paper, I say we as in terms of the societies, and so um, the foundation is actually held to the same standards as the societies. So it is a, sometimes a challenge to decide whether um, something is in violation of our own COI rules. So for example, a long time ago, we would we might have a hernia session sponsored by a bunch of mesh companies, but we, we don't do that anymore. So it becomes challenging to um, encourage industry to invest, and we have yet to figure out a good way to engage industry in donating to the foundation. So the most important thing, if people want to donate, how do they do it? So you can go to either to the AAS Foundation website and donate directly, or you can, on the Academic Surgical Congress website, you can sponsor a poker player. And that funds those funds get divided between the AAS and the SUS Foundation. And there's still time to do that. And until 6 p.m. tomorrow, you can still donate. Okay. And the more money you give, the more chips that person will have. So, for example, I am a late entry I do not know how to play Texas Hold'em, so if if you want to make a podcast on that tonight that I can review <laughs> before tomorrow, that would be awesome. <laughs> we can definitely work on that. Yeah. So I need more chips. So if people want to donate, they can you know donate under my name, and I need all the help I can get. That's wonderful. So can you give people an idea? You've talked about it a little bit, but you know where does that donation go? Why you know why is it so important, and how much of that you know where does that money directly go to? So that money. Uh, goes to funding students and residents for different AAS initiatives. So, for example, um, the AAS puts on some fall courses on fundamentals of surgical research and developing a career in academic surgery. And for a while, um, they were a money-losing endeavor. Now they aren't so much, but for a while the AAS was funding that. We also had a developing a career in academic surgery course in, for example, West Africa. Um, and that is also not a fundraising event. So the foundation funded part of that. We fund students to come to the ASC. We fund student research awards and we fund the trainee research fellowship awards, one of which was recently renamed in honor of Michael Zinner, who is one of the former AS presidents who's mentored many, many people, who some of whom are current chairs now. Great. Well, Dr. Cal, we're looking forward to it. We're looking forward to the poker tournament, looking forward to DJ Dory, and also the rest of the conference as well. Um, thank you for sitting down with us on Behind the Knife. Sure. Thanks. All right. That does it for today. That was the end of the first day of the 13th Annual Academic Surgical Congress. Uh, hopefully, we were able to give you a little sample of, of what was covered today. There was way too much for us to include everything. You're just going to have to come to the meeting to see the rest of it for yourself. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow. Uh, we'll have uh, Dr. Herbert Chen, Jeff Matthews, and a, a couple other guests um, for day two of the 13th Annual Academic Surgical Congress. Until next time, dominate the day.